invite all of you to take a Bible and turn over to Psalm 70. This is a psalm written by King David. It's a a passionate psalm, a desperate psalm, a realistic psalm, a deeply God-centered psalm. Appreciated what Jonathan said at the beginning of this service, that uh, when you stand up here at the front and look out over a group of people, you really don't know what's inside people's hearts, what they're experiencing. And so I don't know what you're bringing to this psalm. I, I know I have a great affection, respect for all of you as a church. We love Gilna Herc. We love to be back here. And uh, I have been praying that as we open Psalm 70, as we read these words of David, that God himself will speak to us. So let's read the inspired words of Scripture. Uh, I will read Psalm 70 now for us. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Father, you who inspired these words, pray that by your spirit you will awaken us to see and to to appreciate the good news in them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The verse I want to focus on in Psalm 70 this morning is verse 4, which is David's prayer to God. Verse 4, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. I'd like us to reflect on three things about this prayer in verse 4. First, I want to point out the context of the prayer, the big trouble that David's in. And then second, I want us to see the content of the prayer, the God-centered joy for which David longs. And then finally, we'll just think about the fact that this is a prayer. It's not a command. It's not an exhortation. Verse 4 is a prayer. So the context, the content, and the nature of this psalm as a prayer. So first, the context of David's prayer, and the context is pretty clearly serious trouble. I I think part of what makes verse 4 so extraordinary is all the other verses in Psalm 70 that surround verse 4. So you'll see if you look at verses 1 to 3 and then verse 5 that King David is in some kind of trouble. Verse 1 and verse 5 form bookends to the psalm and they're both cries for God's help and not just for his help but for his immediate help. There's an urgency about verses 1 to 3 and verse 5 that really strikes you if you take the time to look at this verse. Look at this cry of David for God's speedy deliverance, for speedy help. So verse 1, make haste, David says, O God, 
to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. And then verse 5. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. I want you to hear the urgency of these requests. I wonder if sometimes you felt this same way as you've cried out to God. Like, urgent, I need your help. Lord, come, don't delay. Come now. This sounds to me like a soldier who's pinned down and he's taking enemy fire and he's on the radio calling into central command saying, send backup, send help immediately. Don't delay. I need your help now. It's clear from verses 2 to 3 that David's trouble is the result not just of internal struggle, but there's some kind of external problem. There are enemies who seek his life, who desire his hurt, and they say, aha, aha. In other words, they're not just coming after him, they're gloating over him and over his misfortunes. And we might wonder whether David is sinning as he cries out to God to deal with his enemies. He wants his enemies to be put to shame and confusion, to be turned back, to be brought to dishonor. Isn't it wrong to wish ill upon your enemies? Didn't Jesus, when he was being crucified, didn't he ask God to forgive those who were carrying out that wrong against him? But I think not, not quite so fast. I think we should be careful about, about uh, understanding David as doing something wrong here. Because notice for one thing that David is not taking justice into his own hands. David's not trying to enact retribution against his enemies. In fact, he realizes he can't do that. He's overmatched. He's overwhelmed. He says in verse 5, he's poor and needy. And so he is entrusting himself to God. And he's also entrusting his enemies to God. He's saying, God, I can't deal with these enemies. They're too much for me. So would you deal with them instead? And this sounds a lot like what the Apostle Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12. He says we should not avenge ourselves. We should leave it to the wrath of God. Because God himself says vengeance is mine. I will repay. So as David cries out to God for help from his enemies. He's doing exactly what God would want him to do. He's entrusting himself. He's entrusting his enemies to God. Now, here's what I want us to see nestled right in the midst of all this desperation and these cries for God's help is David's little prayer in verse four. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. One of the reasons I'm so struck by the fact that this prayer emerges out of David's own suffering is because, I'm going to be honest here, when I'm in trouble, I tend to get laser focused on the trouble itself and not think about other things, certainly not think about other people. I just want to work the problem. If there's something that's causing me to to cry out to God, God, help me now, immediately, I don't tend to be thinking about other people. I tend to be thinking about myself. And I noticed that about myself several months ago when our family had car troubles. One of our automobiles broke down. And I could feel myself bearing in on that 
trouble. There's a car that's broken down and we need to deal with it. And I was brusque toward other members of my family because I just wanted to work the problem. I wasn't praying for their good. I wasn't praying for anything else except God help us to figure out what's going on here. Now, obviously, David wants to be relieved of his suffering. He wants to be delivered. Almost every verse in the psalm attests to that desire. So David is, he's urgently asking God for his help. But verse 4 stands out because verse 4 isn't about David at all. Verse 4 is a prayer for other people. Notice in verse 4, right in the midst of his own crisis, David is praying for others. There's something in David's heart that produces verse 4. And it's worth reflecting on that. Makes me think of a Sherlock Holmes story called A Scandal in Bohemia. And maybe some of you have read this. I read it to our kids last year. In the in that little short story, Scandal in Bohemia, Sherlock is hired to steal this uh, valuable and, and, frankly, a scandalous photo that a woman named Irene Adler has, has hidden somewhere in her house. No one knows where except her. And Holmes gets into her house in disguise, and then he has his sidekick, Dr. Watson, throw a smoke bomb in through the window and cry fire. So Irene Adler thinks there's a fire in her house, and what does she do? She goes for the photo. She tries to rescue the photo from the fire because that's the most valuable thing in the house. And Sherlock Holmes is clearly uh, very well versed in the human heart because this is often true. That when there's pressure, when there's crisis, often out of our hearts emerge this care for what we desire most. What we care most about. I think that's happening in David's case here. The pressure he's under is revealing what he really cares about. Turns out what he values most isn't just personal deliverance. I I think that's extraordinary. When David is under pressure, what emerges that, that the deep concern of his heart isn't just for his own deliverance. It's for the good of other people and the glory of God. This is his foxhole prayer to God. Not just save me, God, although that's part of it, but let your people be glad in you. God be glorified in your people. That's what comes out of David's heart and mouth. Some of us may be limping along in life right now. We may be struggling with sin or sickness or loneliness or financial difficulty or relational pain. And maybe we see the title of a sermon like this one, Pursuing Our Joy in God. And we think, that's not for me. That's, that's well beyond me. I'm still in the 101 class of surviving my problems And I've not graduated to the 102 class of pursuing my joy. I'm just trying to work the the crisis. Maybe I'm just trying to survive another day. And we might actually think of verse 4 as a bit disconnected from our lives. That's for people who have it all together. You pursue your joy 
when you have all the basics covered, all, the, all those things taken care of. And I think this is why the context of verse 4 is so challenging and so encouraging because verse 4 exists in a sea of suffering. David does not say, once I get clear from all my enemies, then I'll care about the gladness of God's people and the glory of God. No, his desire for everyone to be happy in God and for God to receive honor from his people, all that exists in his heart right in the thick of his suffering. So this is a real world prayer. This is a realistic prayer. This shows that a desire for joy in God and for the glory of God is not just pie in the sky. It's not just super spiritual stuff. It's not disconnected from all the problems we face. This is realistic because it emerges out of the crisis that David himself is experiencing. And and if God can do that in David's heart, it gives me hope that he can do it for us too. If David can produce this kind of prayer, if God can produce this kind of prayer in David, in the midst of David's circumstances, why can't he do it for us too? You know, like, it, it, before, before all those troubles are solved, why can't he give us this kind of a desire for the glory of God? Why can't he give us greater joy in God? That's the context of the prayer in verse 4. Now I want to see the, the prayer's content. The content of David's prayer is God-centered joy. So here's what David is longing for. Here's what David is asking for from God. Verse 4. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. David prays for two really big things here in verse 4. The joy of all God's people. And the constant glorifying of God's name. So notice how comprehensive his prayer is. He says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. He doesn't just want some of God's people or most of God's people to rejoice in God. He says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. If you're trusting in Jesus, that includes you. And if you're not, it can. Because he says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. So You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to have more good works than bad works. You just need to seek Him. May all who who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And second, David longs for much more in the hearts of God's people than just this kind of occasional intermittent passion for God's glory. He says... May those who love your salvation say evermore, or you could translate continuously or without interruption. May this be a steady state experience for them, not just occasional blip, you know, on Sundays maybe or some other time during the week. But may they say evermore, God is great. So David's praying for the joy of all God's people and for the constant glorifying of God's name. And I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if some of us might squirm a little bit at David's prayer for joy. Maybe, maybe you've heard people say in the past, maybe you've heard Christians say that it's actually more honorable. Maybe you've heard people say it's more virtuous 
when we obey God, even though we don't feel like it, out of a sense of duty. Or maybe you've heard people say that our feelings should be like a caboose, you know, not the thing that's driving the train, but the thing at the end. Or maybe you've heard people say that the really important stuff in the Christian life is right doctrine or it's obedience, practical good deeds, good works, and that feelings are optional. They're not essential. They're the cherry on top. They're not the ice cream. Maybe we've heard people say that it's actually selfish for us to pursue our joy. And I would just say to that, verse 4 doesn't fit with those understandings. That's not the way David feels. It's not the way he thinks. It's not the way he prays. He prays for the joy of all God's people. His prayer here is not that they will believe right doctrine. And his prayer here is not that they will obey God. As important as those things are, his prayer in verse 4 is for joy. It's one of the great revelations of my life 24 years ago when the pastor and author John Piper, we mentioned earlier in the service, who leads Desiring God Ministries, showed me from the Bible that God repeatedly commands us to pursue our joy in Him. And there are many, many, many examples of this in the Bible, but let me just give you a few. Psalm 32, verse 11. David, these are from David himself, who wrote this psalm, Psalm 70. Psalm 32, David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And he, saw, he says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He says in Psalm 64, verse 10, Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. All, he says, not just some. He doesn't just want some of God's followers to be glad. He wants all of God's followers to be glad. And, of course, there are many other passages, both in the, the New and Old Testaments, that say the same thing. Paul says, rejoice always. Rejoice always in First Thessalonians 5.16. The Bible does not call us to forget about our joy and let it just be the caboose, the optional extra that gets pulled along on the train of our thinking or our obeying of Christ. Instead, it commands us to pursue our joy. Something people think of, of you know, Christianity is kind of the, the great big killjoy. It's the system of thought that quenches true joy. And Christianity is always saying, don't do that. And stay away from that. And avoid that. And actually, it's just exactly the opposite. Christianity truly truly understood is not a call to have less joy it's a call to have greater joy and probably the most famous modern expression of this comes from c.s lewis who wrote uh, years ago in one of his books in the, the weight of glory this is actually originally a sermon lewis says this it would seem that our lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant 
by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. I think it's really, really important to see that before David ever prayed for joy for others in Psalm 70, he experienced joy for himself in God. He had already tasted this before he prayed it for other people. Psalm 1611, he said to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, David didn't just know God as true. He experienced him as treasure. For for David, God was his portion. He wasn't just a, a commander of good works. God was David's portion, his treasure, his delight. So David didn't just think rightly, he felt deeply about God. And he prayed the same for all of us. So here's a big question, though. And I think we should really wrestle with this. If we are commanded by God himself to pursue our joy, how can we make sure that that quest for joy, as we seek to obey God, how can we make sure that that quest for joy doesn't become a selfish and self-centered pursuit. God says, pursue your joy. And we say, okay, I'll pursue my joy. But couldn't that easily become just us trying to satisfy ourselves apart from God? And there are two indications in this psalm itself of how our pursuing our joy doesn't become just a selfish pursuit. They're both right here in verse 4. The first is that little phrase, in you. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Be glad in you. So the kind of joy for which David prays is not a joy in some selfish pursuit apart from God, but rather it's a pursuit of joy in God. In, in, In this context, the occasion for joy is God's deliverance. David's David's saying, deliver me, God, so I can be glad. But it's not just a joy in deliverance from enemies apart from God. It's a joy that God knows and sees and cares. And he takes care of his people. He protects his people. David is praying for those who seek God. They don't just seek his salvation. They don't just seek his help. They seek him. They're looking for God. They're hungry for God. And the second way that our quest for joy doesn't become selfish and self-centered is also in verse 4. In fact, it's right after David's prayer that we rejoice in God. This is his second prayer. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. God is great. Not I am great. It's all about me. I will live for me. But the heart of the person for whom David's praying is God is supreme. God is incomparable. There's no one like him. The universe is about him, not me. And people who are God-centered that way aren't going to just be pursuing a selfish joy apart from God. They're going to be pursuing their joy in this God who they treasure. David has a burning passion for God to be proclaimed as supremely valuable. He wants to see all God's people, those who love God's salvation, say continually with their lips and with their lives, God is great. And it's clear, if you read the rest of the Bible, 
that when God delivers his people, when he saves his people, they proclaim his greatness. This happens over and over again throughout the Bible. Think about the shores of the Red Sea. After God has just delivered his people, he's defeated Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. He's led Israel through on dry land. Moses and the people of Israel sing this song to the Lord. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And in the New Testament, when the angels arrive and they announce God's salvation to the shepherds, what do they say? They say, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest. Why? Because he's worked salvation for his people through Christ. And also in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul reflects in Ephesians 1 on God's great plan of salvation, how does Paul respond? He's thinking about God as the savior of his people. How's he how's he respond to that? He says, blessed be. That's another way of saying praise be. Praise be to God. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says God has saved his people to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. Three times he says that in Ephesians one. What does John hear in heaven? In Revelation 19, at the end of the Bible, hallelujah. It's another way of saying praise Yah, praise Yahweh, praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. I love these examples from Scripture because they show that over and over again in the history of the universe and the history of God's people, God has answered this prayer of David. David said, may, may those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May, may they say evermore, God is great. And that's what's happened. God has worked that in the hearts of his people. As he's saved his people, he's awakened praise of him. May God be great. May God be praised. In David's mind and in this prayer, these two things, joy in God and the glory of God, they go together. They're not at odds. They're not in conflict. Instead, they serve one another. I, I, again, have been deeply helped here by John Piper, who shows from the Bible and almost everything he's written for the last 40, 50 years, that the more we find our joy in God, the more God will be glorified. Or the way John Piper often says it, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, the more we delight in God, the more valuable he will be seen to be. And think about it. If you cherish your husband, that commends his worth to other people. If you cherish your wife, if you prize and praise your wife, that commends her worth to other people. If you see a movie, you, you go to the cinema and you enjoy a movie and you come out of the, the cinema praising the movie, that Makes other people want to see it. Samuel, my son Samuel and I just spent uh, a few days in London. And we got to see the musical Hamilton. We came out of that theater praising what we had just seen. The skill of the actors. And we commended through our words, through our enthusiasm, we commended it to other people. When we 
cherish God. When we find our joy in God, we praise Him. We bring glory to Him. We display His worth to others. So these, these two activities in verse 4 are not separate activities. Our joy in God and our glorifying of God are in fact one. Now I want to point out one more thing about verse 4. And that is what verse 4 is. Verse 4 is a prayer. Verse 4 is not a command. Verse 4 is a request. It's a prayer. David believes we need God to work this in us. If David thought we could just screw up our affections and find joy in God, he'd just command us. He'd say, rejoice in God. The Bible says that sometimes. Yes, we are responsible to obey the Bible. We're we're responsible to read God's word. We're responsible to gather with his people. We're responsible to fight sin, which is a, a joy killer. There's so much that we can and should be doing. We are responsible before God. But at the end of the day, if we could just do this on our own, if we could just do verse 4 on our own, verse 4 would be David's word to us, not David's prayer to God. David knows the human heart. And he knows the human heart is not adequate in and of itself to find its joy in God or to praise God. Our hearts are dead. We're enemies of God by nature. God needs to get in there in our hearts and kindle affections. And kindle joy and kindle faith and allow us to pursue him. And so verse 4 is not David's command to us. It's David's prayer to God to help us. So I want to suggest in closing here a really simple takeaway for us. To grow in living Psalm 70 type lives. Begin to pray verse 4 for yourself and for others. Make this your prayer. David prayed it because he knew God was ultimately the one who needs to work this in us so we can pray it too. Lord, may I seek you. May I seek you. If you're not seeking him already this morning, pray that bit for yourself. Lord, may I seek you. If you are seeking him, Lord, may I rejoice and be glad in you. My soul is My soul is weary. I need more of you. I need you to kindle my heart. So Lord, please do it for me. Lord, may I love your salvation. May I say continually, God is great. Father, work that in my heart where I'm more absorbed with other things than with you, where I care more about my income or my kids or my home, where my thoughts go all over the place to other things or other people instead of to you. Lord, You create that in my heart. May my joy in you show the world your worth so that the more I'm satisfied in you, the more glorified you are. The more we grow in this, the more like Christ we become. Because think about it, there was no one ever who faced more troubles than Jesus Christ. David, surrounded by his enemies in Psalm 70, it's just a picture Of Jesus surrounded by his enemies, human enemies, the devil, God, ultimately God, the father on the cross, crushing his son righteously for our sin. No one ever faced more troubles than than Jesus did, but no one ever had more joy in God than Jesus did. 
And so as we experience this, and just in small, small ways, we begin to reflect increasingly the, the image of God in Christ. Here's a question for each one of us to ponder. What will it look like for David's prayer in verse 4 to be answered in my life? May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. Father, we ask you to work this in us because we can't work it in ourselves. We want to take responsibility for what we can do. We want to gather with your people. We want to read your word. We want to confess and fight sin. But Lord, we need you. We need you to work this in us. I pray that we will seek you and that in finding you, we will experience the joy that all of us crave. The satisfaction you made us to seek in you. And that as we do, as we experience this, you will be commended to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.